Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author but also director of the centre. And today I wanted to talk to you about where we've reached in the Rings of Power Amazon series. We're sort of halfway through and I thought I'd check back in and see what people were making of it. We had several conversations um, with other people who were keen on the Silmarillion before it started trying to guess exactly what they were going to do. And now I think we're much clearer, though still not completely clear uh, as to the direction they're taking. But first of all, um, we had somebody ask, why are we spending so much time talking about this? Why don't we just talk about writing and creative points? Perhaps they didn't want to give Amazon the publicity, which, you know, I don't think our little podcast would have made any difference to that. But the answer to that is this is the biggest Tolkien creative event that's happening at the moment. And we at the centre are really interested in what this generation of creatives are making of their raw material. So first of all, let's have a look at the direction that they have taken, what we got wrong in our speculations and what we got right So the first thing that they have done, which we were sort of hoping they would do, which is they've included a Hobbit point of view. That's with the the Harfoots. Um, We began to see that at the end of the preparation period with the trailers, but the Hobbits do provide a comedy, humanising, smaller person stature point of view. But there are problems with it, which I will return to. Um, also, something I got wrong was I thought the tree that appeared in the initial trailer was the tree in Numenor. Uh, in fact, they've gone for quite a small tree in Numenor. The one we see in the um, the still that there was the very first thing they issued is actually from the flashback to Valinor, Galadriel's um, youth. So got that wrong. Oh, well, hand up. Got it wrong. <laughs> but there we go. Um, we weren't going to get everything right. And what we still don't know is whether or not um, the mysterious stranger is Gandalf or Sauron or somebody else. I mean, the hints are that it's Gandalf, the way he talked to the glowworms, the fact that he looks like a young Gandalf the Grey, all of that. There's lots of red herrings there if they go in another direction with that. The question is, how is that 
um, character going to develop because he's not in their material. He doesn't take a big role in the second age, according to the appendices to uh, the uh, Return of the King, which is uh, the material they're working out of mainly. Okay, so that's, you know, quick checklist. Um, we were guessing in the dark. We are no longer in the dark. We have stepped into the light and now we can talk about what they're doing with the material. Okay, so I've seen a lot of criticisms from a purist standpoint. And if I was going to approach this as what they're not doing, what 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 Tolkien things are going against, um, I could make a list of them. Um, so, for example, things like uh, the, the way Gal Galadriel has suddenly become this, in a way, a lesser person because she is now under Gil-galad's um, command. She has that abortive sailing west, all those elements of making her this sort of very driven warrior. All of that uh, doesn't seem to be following what Tolkien was suggesting for Galadriel. Uh, unfortunately, his version of Galadriel in this age is she spends a lot of time um, out of the picture. So you can see where they've gone with that. They want a strong female character and Galadriel was available. Other little things which niggle, I mean, there's quite a lot of them, um, but when they do invent things which aren't in Tolkien, like the backstory for Mithril, uh, that, that's just a bit annoying for those of us who think, why? <laughs> um, you seem a bit weak. Uh, and also the, the origins of the sort of Elrond going to Durin, finding he's there to get the Mithril, all of that felt... Um, it didn't, the motives just seem weird. So they need this mithril, the elves, so they don't fade. That is entirely outside any kind of Tolkien imagining of why the elves are fading. It felt to me as though that was somebody sitting in the writer's room saying, okay, we need to make some urgency for the elves. What are we, and something that's going to be a problem with the dwarves. What can we come up with? Ah, oh, mithril, let's go with that. It feels a weak story move to tick some boxes about motives and pacing. But I am actually not sitting here as a Tolkien purist. I'm sitting here looking at it as a writer who understands the pressures people are in in a writing room to come up with, uh, you know, a good storyline, spinning from very slight stuff, which is what they're trying to do at the moment. Another thing in the... Um, what the Tolkien purists might not like is the whole of sort of dog leg in the story about Galadriel going to <laughs> Numenor. Uh, also, the fleet that they're putting together at the moment, they've got three ships. Doesn't if if this is the expedition that persuades Sauron um, not to take over that part of middle the southern part of Middle Earth, then hmm, doesn't seem very spectacular. I was imagining a vast fleet, but maybe I'm preempt. Maybe that's later on, season three or something. Uh, at the moment, it seems to be a little odd. Some of those moments. So let's talk about what I like about the series. Um, I've enjoyed the casting. Now, I think that Morfid uh, Clark as Galadriel is great. She looks great. She moves well. Um, I enjoy her scenes. I like the sort of twinkling in the eye that Elrond has, uh, Robert Aramayo. 
So some more shout outs for performance. I very much enjoyed The Dwarves. I liked the way Casadum was realised. I liked the fact that they were growing, um, that you could see all the agriculture underground with the reflected light. That was all lovely. I love the thinking through what that vast empty place that we saw in Lord of the Rings might have been like as a working city. I really enjoyed that. And I enjoy the married couple, Disa, who's played by Sophia Nomvetti. Hope I've got your name correctly. And Durin, um, Owen Arthur. Um, they seem to have pitch perfect tone with each other, the sense of a family. Also managing to get in a bit of the majesty of the dwarves with the idea of Disa being um, someone who can sort of sing to the the stones and make them resonate. Really enjoyed that. I also like the um, the humour between Elrond and um, Durin, a real sort of sense of friendship and the sort of rivalry there. And that's where they get the tone appropriate for Tolkien, I think. It, it has a sort of humour which sometimes is lacking in other fantasy adaptations. So that's a big shout out. I think that... I, I enjoy the performance of uh, Daniel Wayman as the stranger, though I um, would like to find out who you are, Daniel, <laughs> but I'm sure lots of people do. I do like uh, Arond the Arondir the Elf. Uh, that's Ismail Cruz Cordova. Um, I, I like his power. I think, I think there's a problem I have... I'm going to talk about this a bit later on. I have a problem with the storyline, but I don't have a problem with him as an elf. I think he looks he looks great. He's got a sense of urge. You know, he sort of feels powerful, has a sense of, um, you know, it's good to see uh, an elf of colour as well, of course. Uh, I think Bronwyn is very convincing in the sort of mother leader role, though, please, costume department. Why is she the only one who's wearing sort of barely anything? Every time she comes on, everyone else is all wrapped up and she's got these bare shoulders. I imagine it's to give her a, a unique silhouette, but I, she just, I just think, put some more clothes on. You look cold because it doesn't look like the warmest place on earth. Um, so I find that distracting. Uh, just a little side note on the costumes. Most of them are absolutely wonderful um, and they are all, all distinctive looking. So... Galadriel has never had a poor scene, though she did spend, I think, a couple of episodes wearing basically a a nightdress, a wet nightdress, poor thing. But I love the dresses and the armour, very regal, majestic, particularly like um, the way they've thought about the Numenor clothing, Muriel, with her sort of scaled armour, very strong look. Um, the elves and the dwarves are all, all very good. The hobbits... Um, I like how they are uh, able to disappear into the natural world, but they seem to be just wearing a lot of bulk. And I'm not convinced that a nomadic people would wear quite so many layers of skirts. It seems to be getting in the way a lot. So costume department, I'd go for a slimmer silhouette for for your hobbits. They all seem to be wearing skirts, even the men. And I thought that the, the hobbits in Lord of the Rings wore just the best clothes, those three-quarter length trousers, waistcoat and shirt. I'd have found something closer to that as a a kind of earlier vernacular. But anyway, 
So I, every time they come on, I get a bit annoyed that they are dragging around so much material. Um, but on the whole, the costume department have done a fabulous job. I can keep going. In fact, it's probably quicker to say those people I don't enjoy so much. Um, and I think that is the older elves. Um, so I'm having in mind here um, Gil Galad and Keller Brimbor. Um, both played by great actors. So Charles Edwards as Keller Brimbor, last seen in The Crown. Oh, yeah. And Gil Gallard is Benjamin Walker. What I, the problem I have with them is they are so clearly older. <laughs> it's odd this. They're clearly older people. And actually, Galadriel is of the same age as them. Or, you know, she's a Noldor too. Uh, in fact, she's older. She's a previous generation. So that mismatch, it kind of sends the wrong signal. So if you're coming to this from the outside, you think, oh, here is a younger woman trying to make these older men see sense and they're plotting about her behind the scenes. Um, so the, visual, the visuals here are sending the wrong signals because actually Galadriel is probably senior elf, one of the senior elves at this stage. Um and so it sort of sets up an odd, misleading sort of power structure. And what's wrong with this? It it just makes the story go slantwise. So you've got the younger generation trying to make the older generation of leaders see sense. The danger is coming back. Sauron's coming back, says Galadriel. And then she's sent away. We don't find out, or she doesn't find out, but we find out later that... Um, Gilgalad is responding to a, a kind of prophecy, understanding that if she stays, that is one of the things that will bring the evil. Uh, he doesn't explain this to her. So it, it just means for me that I don't enjoy the political machinations there. It doesn't work for me. And there's something wrong with the writing there, I think. Um, doesn't mean everyone had to be young who was cast. But when you think back to... Um, when they cast Elrond before, they had that young old look and possibly that would have been a better way to go. Funnily enough, um, Orin, who's played by Joseph Morley, or Maul, um, who's like the bad guy um, who's just emerged, he kind of looks like a young old elf, even though he's a bad guy. So perhaps something like that might have worked rather than these character actors with character faces. That's why I don't know if you agree with me, that's a problem, but I find that a problem. The other thing that uh, I like and enjoy very much is the tone. So I am pleased that they have struck a tone which feels, shall we say, it feels sort of Tolkien. So you've got a warm a sense of warmth in the Harfoots, a sense of family. Um, you also have a sort of scope and I think and sense of history and so they've layered it which is also very Tolkien so when you go to Numenor for once we finally saw a fantasy city that looked big enough to be a proper city rather than just a made-up castle with a few houses uh, it, it made me think of something like uh, ancient Rome it struck the right notes I'm less convinced by Linden and Gilgalad's uh, empire because it seems very sketchy they're mainly walking in trees or 
in that way that elves seem to have no walls. Um, there's a sort of unfinishedness to that kingdom. Uh, I would have preferred a more attention given to the architectural vocabulary in a way and sense of how this works as a place because it is the big kingdom in Middle Earth at this time. So that was a bit disappointing. The port looks good. No, no, I haven't got a... I thought the port was very good. That was building on the Grey Havens idea. But the actual... How the capital city works seems to me not thought about. Whereas Numenor, the sense of this island, I think, is building nicely. And I like that. I like this, the guild system, different classes, um, the idea that there are factions within the politics. Yeah, they've built that up quite well and established it quickly. So let's talk about what they're doing with the Harfoots, the basically the Hobbits. Now, if you look at the prologue to Lord of the Rings, Tolkien mentions three kinds of proto-Hobbits. The Harfoots, who are close to the dwarves, they have a relationship with dwarves. The Stores, who are associated with riverbanks and rivers. And in fact, the these are the ancestors, the where Gollum comes from. And the Fallowhides, who are taller and fairer and like trees. It seems to me as though they are mixing all of those things in the Harfoots. They've probably thought three different kinds of hobbits, three too many. So we'll stick with one because these kind of Harfoots don't have any uh, association with dwarves at all and seem to be much more the sort of natural world hobbits. That's <clears throat> that's fine, but I'm mentioning that because it shows you which story um, ends they've snipped off. The story of the hobbits um, looking after the stranger is a very touching one. And I like the way it's developing with the sort of culture of uh, prophecy within the travelling band. Uh, you know, I like Lenny Henry with his book and his weird hair. Everyone's got weird hair. That's all fun. And the way they hide in the landscape and then emerge. There are some odd things, though, within this culture which seem a bit inexplicable. One is why they don't help each other more. So you've got poor old Poppy pulling a cart on her own. And then there's this moving scene where they um, they remember those left behind. And you soon you realise, actually, they, they left them behind. You know, they broken leg, you get left behind. So there's some elements of um, odd, oddness when you think that some simple shifting around of the burden between members of the group could solve some of those problems. Like, you know, Poppy could join uh, Nori's family, for example, and help push that cart. Anyway, so there's a sort of, I suppose it might be survival of the fittest-ish, <laughs> quietly bubbling along in the Harfoots, which I found a bit worrying. Um, anyway, they are obviously showing their good side by looking after the stranger. And that's one of the strongest storylines for me, the one where they're moving. It's quite slow moving, quite slow burn. But I do like the way that uh, Nori, is, Nori is the one who brings this stranger into the family group. And gradually in the last episode, we see the stranger um, saving others in the group. So he's sort of gaining favour amongst the hobbits and if if this is all a setup for uh, Gandalf 
that would fit with the idea that Gandalf was friendly with the hobbits from earlier. It'd be a bit odd now if that character did turn out to be just another random person in in Middle-earth. I think that all roads seem to be leading to Gandalf. But we'll check back in at the end of the season to find out if they did surprise us. But my problem with the Hobbit story is that it doesn't connect. And actually, from a writing perspective, this is my problem with The Rings of Power. I'm not going to knock it for not following Tolkien and the random odd odd things that happen like Galadriel jumping off a boat because she doesn't want to go to Valinor without a way back. You know, there's some really odd little things that happen. You think, what? You know, Um, they have picked something like five storylines. So you've got Galadriel. That's one really strong thread. You've got The Hobbits. That's another really strong thread. You've got Elrond. He sort of, he straddles too. So Elrond with um, Gil-Galad and the sort of elven politics. And then you've got Elrond with his friend Durin and the mining of Mithril. And those, those two sort of go together. And then you've got down in the south, You've got the story of Bronwyn, Arondir, and the orcs who are sort of taking over the villages down there. That is quite a lot. That's depending how you count that. That's either four or five storylines. If you think of how Lord of the Rings works, it goes from one story to multiple stories. So it starts with Frodo well, Bilbo and Frodo. And then when the fellowship breaks, it then goes to Pippin and Merry, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, Frodo and Sam. So you you do split. But it's you've you've been together to start with. They've taken the approach of starting split. So none of the stories actually touch each other, except for a brief moment when Galadriel and Elrond right near the beginning when they're together um but it's only a very a glancing moment and so what you've got is storylines that seem to be on their own trajectory but and I imagine what I mean I guess what they're doing is they're actually going to braid them all together at the end unless they decide to leave one story separate so you could decide to leave the, the Hobbit story kind of separate its own thing, which would be odd, but you could see them doing that from the point of view that the Hobbits don't have an influence on the big events. But anyway, we started with five and I think it's been a bit uneven as to which stories you like. I've had a problem caring about the Bronwyn Arondir setup there are other people I've talked to who actually like that. Um, it's just because I've, I've got a limited amount of attention for people who I want to root for, and that's not one where I feel um, invested as yet. So the danger is when that storyline comes on, you think, oh, come on, let's get back to the real story. And the real story seems to be Galadriel. So rewriting it as, you know, 
as a creative, you spend all your time rewriting. I think I would have break, I would have connected them earlier on, so that you see how they how they touch. You could have done something like, um, is it is it Halbrand? Halbrand, the the man who Galadriel meets on the raft, could have come from the south where Bronwyn and Co are. So you could have made connections when the hobbits are going through the landscape you could see the elrond riding by you and you would then start to see oh yes they are inhabiting the same world that for me would have made it easier for me to care about all the storylines i may find by the end of the series that actually it's great and they've very cleverly woven it all together but at the moment i'm a little bit frustrated by it because it doesn't seem to hang together as a piece. What do you think? I mean, you I may have picked on the very thing that you like. I've talked to people who don't know much about Tolkien and they all seem to be kind of okay with it. I haven't found someone who says, yes, this is the best thing I've ever watched as a piece of television. Um, there's quite a lot of people who think, oh yeah, that's fine, but I'm watching House of the Dragon and I really like that. So it hasn't risen above the um, the huge numbers of fantasy television series that are out there at the moment. But mm, I think I'd say it's not doing too bad. I do look forward to Fridays and watching it. I just wish they would weave the stories together a little bit more satisfactorily. So that's a check-in at Halfway. And we will come back for a fuller, more expert look at the whole of the series once it's completed. We always have a section where we think about where in all in all the fantasy worlds is the best place for something. And this time, because I've mentioned weaving and braiding numerous times, I thought I would have a think about where is the best place to be a weaver. Because the whole art of the loom and weaving is, of course one of those um, story-like tropes that come up time and time again. You've got Penelope sitting at home waiting for Odysseus to return, weaving her story threads, and you've got, uh, and then cutting it up to start again um, so that it's never complete. And you've got the fates weaving uh, so that, um, you know, your, your, your future is sort of in, in, in the tapestry. So where is the best place to be a weaver? Well, there is one story which, if you're going to allow me, it's kind of straddling the um, the fantasy realist novel <laughs> place, and that's George Eliot's novel Silas Marner. Now, George Eliot is known to write books which are the sort of uh, realistic novel, you know, Middlemarch, uh, a, in-depth study of a provincial town so you don't tend to think of her as fantasy but this particular story it's shorter than her other novels and it has the uh, architecture of a fairy tale so a weaver hence the weaver who is wrongly accused of stealing because he suffers from a putty mal you know has fits where he loses consciousness um, he's exiled in disgrace from his 
urban religious community and he sets up as a miserly figure in a village and again his um, money is stolen from him and in its place in a sense is left this little girl and the story then becomes the fairy tale it's like the gold turned into a little girl it has a real world version but the actual happily ever after um, thread of the story of transformation feels very fairy tale so it's the closest George Eliot comes to writing something which feels like a fantasy so that's my pick Silas Marner by George Eliot Uh, so if you have any ideas for where you think you'd like to be a weaver do let us know thank you very much for listening Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.